Hey everybody, Michael Cohen here, welcoming you back to another episode of Cohen's Corner. Thank you very much for tuning in to today's show. As always, you can find episodes of this podcast available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Alexa devices, and anywhere else you listen to shows. If you happen to be listening on an Apple device, we encourage you to leave a star rating, preferably five stars if you like the show, and maybe a comment. I check all the feedback myself, and it's awesome to hear from so many of you, and I hope to hear from so many more as we continue on down the road. Today's guest is former Heisman Trophy winner and NBA point guard Charlie Ward, who rose to prominence in the early 90s and is now remembered as one of the greatest athletes of this generation, not only for his star power in football and basketball, but also in baseball, where he was drafted twice, once by the Brewers and once by the New York Yankees, and also as a very good amateur tennis player as well. Charlie Ward started off as a punter at Florida State. That's right, he won the punting competition for Bobby Bowden as a true freshman and didn't take over as quarterback until his junior year in 1992, and then he absolutely exploded in 1993 by winning every single individual award he was eligible for. That includes the Heisman Trophy, the Maxwell Award, the Walter Camp Award, the Johnny Unitas Award, the Davey O'Brien Award, and the very prestigious Sullivan Award, which is handed out by the Amateur Athletic Union and given out to the top amateur athlete in the country, regardless of sport. The year Charlie won the Heisman in 1993, he completed 264 of 380 passes for a clip of 69.5%. He threw for 3,032 yards, 27 touchdowns, and only 4 interceptions, and also chipped in 339 rushing yards and 4 touchdowns while helping Florida State secure the first national title in school history. While at Florida State, he also played 4 years of Division I basketball and still holds the school record for steals in a career and steals in a single game. He helped the Seminoles reach the Elite Eight in one of his seasons and the Sweet 16 in another and finished his career with good numbers averaging 10.5 points per game, 4.9 assists per game, 3.9 rebounds per game, and an incredible 2.8 steals per game. By the end of his college career, Charlie Ward was undecided about whether or not he wanted to pursue life in the NFL or pursue life in the NBA, both of which were going to be possible. Scouts at the time believed that he would not go through with the NFL draft unless he was guaranteed to be a first-round pick, and that was unlikely because of his lack of size at the position and also some concerns about how often Florida State played out of the shotgun, which was not nearly as in vogue as it is right now. And so ultimately, Charlie Ward did not get drafted because there were concerns about his commitment to football, his size, and again, some of the offensive scheme things that Florida State did at the time, which oddly enough now are considered so common that quarterbacks who line up primarily under center are are going out of style quickly. And so Charlie Ward ended up being drafted in the first round, number 26 overall, by the New York Knicks in 1994. He carved out a role as a starting point guard a couple years into his career under Jeff Van Gundy and became a reliable shooter, defender, and distributor while helping the Knicks go to the playoffs seven consecutive years, including one trip to the NBA Finals in 1999 when they lost to the Spurs in five games. Charlie Ward then went on to become a coach. He served as an assistant coach for the Houston Rockets for a couple years and has also coached high school football and high school basketball. He's now the boys head basketball coach at Florida State University Developmental Research School in Tallahassee. 
and he does a tremendous amount of work off the field and off the court as well through the Charlie and Tanja Ward Family Foundation. They have all kinds of community service efforts, charitable efforts related to Christian youth development. They've done a lot with disaster relief, and there's just a tremendous amount of philanthropic work that Charlie and his family have done, uh, which is extremely admirable and has added to a great deal of his legacy, both in the Tallahassee, Florida area, and as well as other parts of the country, because, you know, certainly when he was in New York, he endeared himself to Knicks fans for his commitment on the court and his efforts off of it. And so Charlie Ward is just regarded uh, in all circles as, as one of the, you know, most tremendous athletes of all time and also one of the best people of all time. And I was really excited to be able to record this episode. A little bit of a warning here before we get started. You may hear an occasional background noise in today's episode. The day Charlie and I recorded this podcast, there was some work being done on my house, and so there were guys outside the windows, um, an occasional hammer, an occasional drill that you might hear softly in the background. And once they startled my dog, so there are two barks that I was unable to edit out of this episode, so I apologize for that. But overall, 99% of the episode sounds great, and I hope you guys enjoy it. And without further ado, let's get into a conversation conversation with former Heisman Trophy winner and New York Knicks point guard, Charlie Ward. Well, Charlie, thank you so much for taking the time to join me. I really appreciate it. Uh, You and I are recording this on a Tuesday morning, and I know it's the day after your 50th birthday, so a happy belated birthday to you. I I hope you and the family had an opportunity to celebrate last night. Uh, Yes, we did. Got an opportunity to go and hang out on the golf course with uh, two of my older kids. Uh, and uh, friends of ours and we're in town and uh, he has a birthday coming up uh, in a couple of days 15th and so we went and had our birthday uh, golf golf outing and it was uh, pleasant and had some time with the, with the uh, wife and other son as well so it was all good I'm glad to hear that. I'm glad to hear that. You know, having spent so many years in and around the NBA, you know, we're recording this a couple days after the NBA Finals wrapped up, and I did want to get your take on it. You've played in so many big playoff games over the course of your career. What did you think when you had a chance to catch a game now and then of this bubble environment and what that would have been like contending for a championship in such a unique circumstance? Um, I mean, it seems to have served its purpose which was to uh, get uh, guys uh, in a bubble to where you had very few interruptions when it came to games. Um, and and then you got a lot of guys together and there are a lot of things as far as talking out uh, different uh, situations and getting together and meeting quickly with you know certain players or players in general. So I think the reason the bubble was set, it uh, definitely happened um, the way that they uh, envisioned it. You know, one of the things I wanted to ask you is, is when I watch LeBron on television, you know, I, I just see such incredible athleticism, but I think there's a, a unique part of it that stems from his time playing football growing up as a multi-sport athlete. And and with you having such a a dynamic background, you know, baseball, basketball, football, even tennis as well, you know, what do you think are the benefits for for athletes of, of, you know, not necessarily specializing in one sport and kind of training in all different areas? Do you believe in in the importance of of spreading around a young player's time? Um, I mean, it it depends on the, the individual. 
because uh, everyone is at different stages of their development. And, you know, the better athletes uh, normally are asked to play um, or some are wanting to play multiple sports. Um, I actually have a kid now who uh, that I coach in basketball who's, um, you know, a two-sport guy, and he's gotten offers from some major universities uh, in both sports. And so, you know, he he's making a decision to continue to play both sports because he has options there. So, I mean, everyone's situation is different. Um, and, you know, if you're able to do it, um, I, I encourage, you know, because there are some benefits to it, uh, especially if it's a complimentary, I mean, complimentary uh, sport. Uh, to your major sport, whatever your major sport may be, um, I just think it's in, important to be able to, you know, have um, those different experiences. I know I was able to glean a lot of experiences from my basketball days before I got an opportunity to really compete um, in football in college. And so, you know, there are a lot of experiences that you can gain uh, from those sports um, and, you know, just learning more about being a good teammate and those types of things. Did you, um, did you notice any carryover between what it was like to be a point guard for an offense and what it was like to be a quarterback for an offense? Did you notice anything that, that helped you in that transition? Um, not so much, uh, from a physical standpoint because, um, I mean, physically it was a little different, but Mentally, it was all pretty much the same, you know, leading. I was a quarterback and a point guard, and those similarities are very, you know, are there. And um, and so that that kind of helped me to understand and grow uh, of, uh, you know, being a leader. Um, I had you – know, I was de- delivering the, the ball to certain guys and understanding, you know, how to make that happen guys' strengths and weaknesses and those types of things. But, you know, I don't think there was much of anything as far as physically outside of, you know, just being in different type of shape. Um, That was something I had to get accustomed to once I played basketball. Once I came from football to basketball, uh, that was something I had to get accustomed to. But, you know, when it was all said and done, the positions that I played pretty much – you know, had me doing the same thing. What was it that attracted you to Florida State when you were coming out of high school? Well, I grew up like 30, 30 minutes from uh, Tallahassee, so I was familiar with Florida State. actually had one of my um, uh, high school um, teammates um, at Florida State um, before I got there. He's four years older than I was, but it was Coach Bowden. I mean, it's and you know being being able to be closer to home um, it was really some of the main factors, uh, and also getting a chance to you know possibly play basketball uh, and football at Florida State. So those were some of the things that drew me to uh, Florida State. 
I, I'm guessing that when you uh, when when Coach Bowden was was pitching you and and maybe making a visit to your house, if that happened, I I'm guessing he probably didn't bring up the idea that you would be punting 35 <laughs> times your freshman year. Uh, no, I mean that wasn't on the radar because uh, at that time, you know, we had punters on you know on scholarship, and but the punter that was supposed to be her punter that year got hurt. Um, so that opened up the, the, the punting competition. And it was uh, between me and Scotty McLaren, who's a walk-on. And I ended up winning the competition. So um, that was, and I punted in high school, so that wasn't a big, big issue. Uh, so, you know, it, was, it just it was what it was. I mean, when you're on a team and you're asked to compete for a job, and regardless of what that may be, um, it, it, as long as it wasn't long term, you know, it was, it was a short term deal. Um, you know, it was cool with me. How did you feel when you won the starting job in '92, and you have an opportunity to to lead this team with with all the talent that it had? You know, a team that certainly was going to be in the national title picture just about every season. What, what did that mean to you to win the job, and and how are you feeling going into that season? Uh, well, we it was um, something that uh, recruited to play quarterback and. You know, I had to wait my time, and that was always the the uh, thing at Florida State was, you know, you, you weren't going to come in and play as a freshman or early unless, you know, there was injury um, because they had stacked the, the classes with quarterbacks, and we were winning at the time, so it really didn't mean much uh, if, um, you know, it didn't mean much if, if we were winning and the quarterback was playing, you know, well or well enough to win games, then there was no need to replace them. So I had to wait my time and um, I was grateful that, you know, I was able to get an opportunity. I got multiple opportunities my junior year because I struggled early and, you know, was bench um, for Danny Canal uh, for a couple of, couple of plays. And then I, they gave, continued to give me an opportunity and to, you know, make up for the mistakes that I made, and I was able to attain. I mean, uh, um, to make it happen when I got my opportunity down the stretch of games to be able to put put a drive together, make plays, and help our team win early on. And so that helped build confidence. Um, and when it was time for me to continue to improve uh, throughout the year. Um, I was able to make the adjustments of throwing it to my team. Uh, that was the one of the biggest issues I had. Uh, once I made the adjustment to, you know, really throwing it to my team, but also just getting experience. Because I hadn't played uh, quarterback, you know, in any meaningful snap, snaps before I took um, the, the the job, uh, before I made, uh, had the job at, my junior year so you know I was kind of on the run learning a lot of, uh, you know how, how to play the position you know in a game um, and learning about you know throws and making decisions and those types of things and 
And so it was a challenge. But once uh, I was able to navigate my way through that and gain some experience, uh, I, I, I settled down and, and things got a lot, a lot better. Yeah, I had a, an earlier episode of the podcast with, I believe, one of your former teammates. I think you overlapped with R- Leroy Butler for one year when you first got to campus, and Leroy was telling me a similar story where the defensive backfield was was so loaded, and this was a time when Deion Sanders was there, you know, sort of headlining that group that, you know, he had to wait his turn and play special teams and, and learn the game and, and start to understand what was asked of him at this higher level, certainly a higher level than any high school program. And so I'm wondering if if in terms of your quarterback development was there a coach or a coordinator or maybe even a veteran teammate that was very instrumental uh, to your growth process there as you as you took over the job um i mean i i was uh there with peter tom i was there with peter tom willis my um my freshman year and he taught me a lot of uh, lessons as far as playing a position and those types of things. Uh, that was very important uh, to my development. Uh, watching him compete at a high level, he didn't. He wasn't, you know, as athletic, but he uh, studied the game, knew where he wanted to go to football, knew the offense, um, and those things are valuable uh, when you are, you know learning to play the game. Um, and then I had Brad Johnson and Casey Weldon uh, also in front of me. So got an opportunity to watch them uh, compete and from the sideline, which was also valuable because, you know, I wanted to get in and make my mark and play the game and like they were playing it. And, but it also gave an opportunity to learn, you know, how, how they did it. So, you know, then I have Coach Mark Rick. Mark, Coach Mark, Coach Rick was my uh, offensive coordinator. I'm, he was not offensive coordinator, but he's my position coach. And so he taught me a lot um, as well about playing a position and, you know, helping me through uh, the stages of when I had to wait and be patient. But more about, you know, being a man, man of God. And uh, that was very valuable as well. You know, when I went back and watched some of your highlights in, in getting ready to talk to you today, it was it was amazing to me how much the Florida State offense, you know, in the early 90s looked like a lot of the offenses we see today, even though it was a point in time in college football where you didn't see as much shotgun around the country as you guys did. You didn't see as many spread formations with four and five wide receivers and, you know, you alone in the backfield for, for an empty set. And, you know, I, I reached out to one of my colleagues who has covered the NFL for 30, 40 years. And I asked him, I said, what was the conversation about in terms of Charlie when he was, you know, getting ready to come out of Florida State? And he said, at the time, believe it or not, it sounds silly now but scouts were nervous about guys who who didn't line up under center all the time and shotgun was a little bit different then it wasn't something that you saw as often and so I'm wondering if if you sort of notice the same things when you turn on the television now and catch a football game do you see a lot of resemblance to the stuff that you guys were doing there almost like you were ahead of the time a little bit at Florida State um I mean we our offense my junior and senior year um, you know, we, they kind of studied, uh, 
the Buffalo Bills at the time, Jim Kelly, um, who was a teammate of uh, Coach Rick in college. And so uh, we had, you know, they had gone out and looked at, you know, offenses that could possibly fit what we were doing. And uh, so we were kind of doing um, some of the things that the NFL was doing at the time, my junior year, early on, um, underneath the center, um, running, you know, two plays um, and at the huddle, checking at the line. Um, those are the things that we were doing early on. So that wasn't really the issue uh, when it came down to, you know, playing underneath the center because I did that. And, of course, during that time, I wasn't as successful, but, um, that wasn't, re- that wasn't the reason I was not successful. It was just, I was inexperienced and, you know, learning to take care of the football, you know, those types of things. That's, that's what I had to learn. And, and, and so that was the biggest issue um, I had, not so much the offense. Uh, but when we started going a little bit, no huddle, um, you know, after the Georgia Tech game, uh, things started to, you know, click. And really, you know, not huddling was the big key uh, to to our success because it, it it gave us the opportunity to be able to go fast if we want to go fast and we could slow down if we want to slow down. And the defense, you know, kept the defense off balance and put them in one, one uh, defense or a couple defense that had to show their hand quicker. So those things definitely helped. But you know, to see guys now, you know, playing in a spread type offense and system and the pros um, and guys given opportunities that come from those types of systems in college, you know, even before, you know, Patrick Mahomes and all the guys who, you know, just maybe five years ago, not even that long ago, you know, it's like, you know, can these type of quarterbacks be successful in the NFL. Um, and so it's been refreshing to see, you know, guys who come from spread situations be able to transition, you know, to the NFL and have success. When uh, when it came to the improvements that you made from junior to senior year, I mean, you know, dropping the interceptions from 17 all the way to four, your completion percentage skyrocketed from 56 to 69 and a half. I mean, these are these were massive, massive improvements. Was it really just a, a matter of experience, like you said, or, or was there something else maybe that happened in between your junior and senior year that that made everything click so nicely for you in '93? I mean, no. I mean, the only thing that changed was, you know, a year of experience, a year of familiarity with the offense and what we were running. Um, And everyone's kind of on the same page. And, you know, having – you know, we had good players both years. But that's the only thing that really changed was just, you know, more experience – uh, understood and knew where I want to go to football every time. Um, and, you know, to me, that was the only difference um, was I just understood and knew uh, the offense, you know, the ins and outs of it. Uh, and also, you know, just 
being able to uh, get on the same page with the receivers um, and, you know, the, the linemen, had great linemen, be able to help, you know, in that aspect as far as the run game and all the different components. Uh, so really the only thing that changed was experience uh, in having momentum going into, you know, senior year, which, uh, you know, plays a big part as well in what you're doing. You know, that season, of course, ends with a national championship for Florida State, the first one in school history, and that game against Nebraska, an 18-16 final, still one of the most exciting national championship games in college football history. And, and I'm curious how you guys felt as a team, you know, going into that. Did it seem like, um, you know, you had the requisite confidence to go in there and get this done? Because, you know, obviously at the time, Florida State and under Bobby Bowden, and, and then, of course, um, you know, Nebraska under Tom Osborne, two of the, the powerhouses in college football. It was almost like a dream matchup for fans. How do you remember, you know, the buildup to that game and, and the excitement surrounding a chance to win the school's first national title? Well, that was a, uh, a game that we knew if we could ever get into a national championship game uh, in a bowl game, we had an opportunity to win a championship. Uh, because we had a bowl streak going at the time. I'm not sure how many uh, games it was at that time, but um, I know we were we had lost a bowl game in quite some time. And and so just to be able to get an opportunity, uh, get the opportunity to play for a national championship uh, was was a blessing. And two, we knew going in the game would would be you know a tough one for us, but on the outside, people were looking at, you know, how explosive our offense was defensively. We was, we were sound all year and, you know, they were kind of not giving Nebraska a chance and, you know, saying that we would win the game and those handily because the year before we played them and I think we won 27 to 14 in the Orange Bowl. And so people are looking for a repeat of that type of game. But we knew going in that it would be tougher. Um, they were a year older as well. And, you know, we didn't take them for granted. And so it was a good championship game. Uh, you know, that's all you can ask for. That's what you kind of want um, as a fan to be able to see a competitive game. Um, and as a player, you know, you want to be in those types of games. Because that's where, you know, legacies are made. You know, whenever you're trying to win a championship, uh, you want to be in competitive games uh, for the most part because that means you have a chance to win. Uh, and then, you know, during the course of the game, uh, you have an opportunity to, you know, make plays to, to uh, determine the outcome. And so for us, we were able to have the football I was a minute 16 left on the clock, and we had to put a drive together um, to go down and we kicked the game-winning field goal. Uh, but, you know, that's kind of what you want as a player, to be able to have a football, especially quarterback, have a football in your hand uh, late in the game to uh, take your team down uh, for, you know, a, a game-winning drive. And that was something that, you know, I was – you always dream of uh, when you're a little kid 
and just to have the opportunity to do it. I had multiple opportunities that year to uh, do that, and I was successful two out of those uh, three opportunities. So uh, not me per- just me personally, but just our, our offense was successful as well. You know, that was a, a time when certainly winning a, a national title as the quarterback is going to launch, you know, just about anybody into, you know, sort of a, a, a school hero type of position. And then you, you add on, you know, the, the individual awards that you won that year from the Heisman Trophy to the Maxwell Award, the Davey O'Brien, the James E. Sullivan Award given to the top amateur athlete in the country, regardless of sport. And I saw this really cool quote from your former teammate, Warwick Dunn, that said, you know, despite all of the attention, despite all of the awards, you were perhaps one of the most grounded and most humble teammates he's been around in terms of somebody who had that level of star power surrounding them. And so, you know, obviously you kept a level head and, and you're obviously a very humble guy. And so I'm wondering what that month was like, you know, sort of winning a national title, being launched into this this school hero status and then all the awards that come with it. You know, just just how did you feel, you know, being sort of the, the talk of the country, if you will? Um, I mean, it wasn't something I kind of signed up for, uh, to, to, to have that type of status. But when you're playing, uh, on a nationally ranked team and you're the quarterback, uh, man, you have decent numbers. Those things are going to happen when it comes to notoriety and then winning the Heisman, uh, then being a part of like all the bank banquet circuits in a sense um, of trophies and those types of things. Um, It was something that, you know, I didn't expect, but it was, it was, it was happening. Um, And I enjoyed the moment. So like I tell everyone else, you know, you have to enjoy the moment, understand, you know, that it's not, so it's like lifelong uh, times that you'll probably have those opportunities. Uh, but, you know, I was grateful to be able to, you know, take advantage of, you know, being on a solid team, on a good football team and basketball team. Uh, and, you know, it's not something I, I desired. So that was one of the reasons why, you know, my parents always told me about being humble and, you know, living, you know, at a certain, a certain place. Uh, because, you know, you get too high, get too high yourself, then, you know, things could definitely come tumbling down. And I just wanted to stay in a place where, you know, I wanted to be normal. Um, Even though people were putting me on a certain type of pedestal, I still wanted to be normal, a normal kid. Um, I know when I went home, I was the regular junior that's what they called me at home. And, <laughs> and so I really didn't, you know, want to, I didn't change much. Um, didn't like going places. Uh, so nothing in, in my DNA really changed, uh, who I really was. Um, uh, even though my status, my name recognition, uh, changed a little bit. Uh, but you know, it was great, great opportunity to be able to help others, uh, with the name, status, and all those different things. And uh, for a family to be able to get some experience, gain some experiences as well. 
So, you know, it was not just good for me, it was good for, you know, a lot of other people uh, that was in my in my life. What did you enjoy about, you know, that transition period each year going from football to basketball and then having an opportunity to be part of a different team and showcase a different part of your skill set? You know, you were, you know, a pl- prolific player there in terms of steals and defense, you know, still hold the school record in steals, still hold the school record for most steals in a game, sixth in assists, um, you know, led the team uh, or contributed to leading the team to the Elite Eight at one point. You know, what, what did you enjoy most about, you know, the basketball side of Florida State? Um, I was just grateful that, you know, Coach Kennedy allowed me to uh, play. Um, you know, that was the first thing because, you know, most times I look back now, you know, most times guys who are similar, in my similar uh, situation, you know, playing uh, football or, you know, well, playing football mainly, and they go and try to play basketball, uh, they normally don't have an opportunity to commit a full year uh, to playing just their secondary sport. Um, and that's where I was afforded uh, the opportunity to kind of get my feet wet, make my name uh, on the team, um, you know, solidify that that part with uh, my play. Uh, my second year in college where I was able to go out and play college uh, play basketball full time, so I'm grateful Coach Bowden allowed me to do that. Um, yes, I was grateful to have Coach Bowden allow me to play basketball my second year full time, um, where I was able to make my name uh, and earn my position in basketball uh, that year. So that gave me an opportunity once I came back from football. You know, the coaches knew what I was capable of doing. The players, uh, my, my teammates knew what I was capable of doing. And that played a big part in me having the, the career that I had uh, in basketball. When did you start to realize that basketball would be the path you went down professionally? You know, certainly you could have gone into the NFL. Um, you ended up being a first-round pick by the Knicks. There were even two instances where you were drafted by Major League Baseball teams. You know, you, you kind of had any route you wanted to go. There was an option for you because of your tremendous talent and ability. And so when did you kind of decide that basketball would be the path that, that you prefer in moving forward? Uh, well, it was after the NFL draft. So whenever I didn't get drafted in the NFL is when I put more, when I, I mean, fully went 100% uh, into getting prepared for the NBA process, combines, individual workouts, and those types of things. So that was something afterward, after the NFL draft is when I started to focus on uh, the NBA full-time. And you get drafted by the Knicks, like I mentioned, number 26 overall in the 94 draft. And you come into a locker room that has Patrick Ewing, John Starks, Derek Harper, Anthony Mason, Charles Oakley. How did it feel to kind of enter into a locker room with with such great veteran players? And in Patrick Ewing's case, you know, maybe one of the best players ever at his position. And, And how did it kind of... What was the transition like, I guess, into finally focusing on, on just one sport after spreading yourself around for so much of your life? Uh, well, those guys were great. You know, I was blessed to be able to have veterans, uh, you know, in the locker room and on the court. 
Uh, Derek Harper was my mentor, one of my mentors um, there. And, and so he taught me a lot about how to be a professional. Um, I had my buddy, Monty Williams, who was, you know, we drafted together. We were drafted together. So uh, we became lifelong uh, brothers um, after that year. Uh, but the transition, you know, it was just like, um, I guess any other thing, you know, going from high school to college and then from college to the professional ranks, uh, you kind of start over, you know, I know during my time I had to start over, uh, because, you know, I was one of the top football players in college, uh, but not, you know, when it came to basketball, you know, I was, uh, not one of the top. So I had to, um, you know, work my way into the lineup. Um, and that was a year and a half wait. Right. Uh, but during that time, you know, I learned uh, a lot, you know, like I said, from Derek Harper, learned a lot about preparation, learned a lot about perseverance, learned a lot about being patient. Um, and so those were, things I had to contend to learn. Uh, but the transition was, uh, it w- I wouldn't say it was difficult, but it was a mindset that I had to change. Uh, I had to work ethic, but I had to find a way to work even harder. You know, playing for Coach Riley or being there with Coach Riley, he taught me that lesson, uh, which was uh, something that, you know, I needed to, to learn. You know, and I had Coach Jeff Van Gundy there who helped me with my skill development. Um, and so that was uh, those are all life learning lessons. I look back now and you know, definitely God's preparing me for, you know, great, great moments in the NBA. Um, but I just had to, uh, you know, be patient and wait my time. And uh, while I was waiting, you know, I had to work on the things that I needed to work on because I hadn't played basketball full-time and there are a lot of things I needed to work on uh, when it came to upside and so that was part of my development and I was grateful that you know because Van Gundy took the time I know he didn't say it was his job but he took the time to help me uh, become the type of player um, that I became over the course of uh, my time in the NBA. Yeah, and those Knicks teams in the late 90s were, you know, some just tremendous teams. And, you know, you look at that 96 season, you get to the conference semifinals and and you have to play the Bulls. But then a couple years later, you make this amazing run in a lockout shortened season where, you know, you go all the way to the NBA finals. And, you know, I don't know what your thought on this is, but I, I maintain that. You know, if if Patrick doesn't go down with that Achilles injury in the playoffs, I think maybe those finals look a little bit different because then you have just another big body in there against Tim Duncan and David Robinson. But, you know, that 98-99 team, you, you beat the Heat, the Hawks, and the Pacers to reach the NBA Finals. In 20 playoff games, the team never gave up more than 96 points, and this is Patrick Ewing, Latrell Sprewell, Allen Houston, Larry Johnson, Kurt Thomas, yourself, Marcus Camby. What made that group so much fun, and, and you know how close did you guys feel you were to, to winning one? Uh, well, that year we, you know, we had some challenges, that we had to overcome, you know, the trail was out for, for a significant amount of time, uh, because of the 
you know, it was a shortened year, and so he missed some games. And then we had the transition because all those guys were, uh, not all, but, you know, Marcus, Latrell, Kurt, they were all kind of um, just getting there. Um, I think Kurt may have been there the year before, but, you know, we were all trying to learn each other um, on the fly, in a sense, because of the lockout. And, you know, it took us some time. You know, we didn't know if we were going to make the playoffs. And just like most teams that get on a run late um, and they have great success uh, going through the playoffs because they peaked or started performing at a high level later in the season. Um, And that was us. So, you know, it was very similar to kind of like Miami Heat uh, this year. They were low seed. Um, you know, going to the, the the playoffs and they made it all the way to the finals. Uh, but, you know, they found a way to, you know, get there. Um, guys stepped up and played well. And for us, you know, just like the Heat this year, you know, injuries, you know, just kind of slowed that process, um, you know, down. They had two guys, Miami had two guys that were out early. Well, one, you know, two guys out early, one came back. Um, and then another one came back, you know, for a game, I think it's six or five, whatever it was. And I mean, six. And so it was uh, something that you have to deal with. Uh, but, you know, for us, not having Patrick and then not having Larry, uh, he didn't play um, much, if any. I don't think he played in the finals either because of a knee injury. Um, you know, missing those two guys definitely hurt us in the area that we needed the most depth in, which was, uh, you know, the, the front court. Uh, because of, you know, um, uh, Duncan and Robinson, you know, it was, um, it was definitely a, a handful. Um, the guys we had did a great job, but it, it was something that they required you know, attention, and we just didn't have the depth to be able to to, to do it. So it wasn't meant for us to, to, to win the championship. Um, but when it's all said and done, it was a great, great experience, a great run, um, and that's all you can ask for. Yeah, absolutely. And and certainly during that time, you developed a role um, as a defender, as a distributor, as a three-point shooter that sort of really endeared yourself uh, to you know fans in New York. And in addition to the, the effort and intensity you played with, I think they also appreciated a lot of the off-the-court work that you did. And I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about that before we wrap up today's show. You know, you and your wife and your family have done such tremendous work through um, you know, sporting events and, and, you know, youth camps and, and things focused on Christian youth development. Um, you were giving back as early as your time at, at Florida State, even to some of your teammates, you know, that were going through rough times being there for them, especially Warwick Dunn, you know, a story that's gotten a lot of publicity over the years. Uh, you've coached, you know, football, you've coached basketball, um, you know, with the clinics and youth events and everything that you and your Ward Family Foundation has accomplished and continues to do, you know, what what makes you uh, so passionate about giving back to the community, and and where did that desire come from? Where where was it instilled in you growing up? Well, I mean, I came from a family of giving. You know, my mom and dad. My mom was a uh, librarian. She was a teacher, educator, um, and were part of civic groups in the community. 
Uh, my dad was a coach, and uh, he gave, you know, I was in the cars where he was taking guys home uh, that didn't have, you know, rides. Uh, and, you know, it wasn't just one guy. You know, it was multiple guys that we had stops for uh, on the way, you know, to our house. And so, um, and there are a lot of people my, my parents helped help with. Uh, to be able to help them have a life. And then, you know, there are people in my community who helped me um, as well uh, learn and grow and put a lot of time and energy into me to be the type of person uh, that I that I am today. And so I just think it's beneficial that, you know, we all have a part in helping people um, because we're all kind of, we're all going to be in that situation um, and it may not just be financial. It just may be giving people an opportunity to be experience something different uh, than, you know, what they're accustomed to experiencing um, or just being there for them. Um, because, you know, we do hurricane relief uh, efforts uh, throughout foundation uh, with other partners uh, and our daughter, uh, she does holiday notes uh, where she goes and encourages, you know, senior citizens. Uh, with, you know, through musical, um, well, with music. Um, and she brings in the, the aspect of uh, the community with, you know, kids or people writing letters uh, to uh, the elderly um, that are maybe in assisted living homes or, you know, VA hospitals and those types of things. So, you know, it's I think it's uh, something that we all should do because that's what God has called us to do is to be able to help someone else. And, you know, with the resources that we are able to uh, gain um, and also uh, people, your notoriety, name recognition, those types of things, be able to help others, I think is important. Yeah, absolutely. I, I totally agree with you. And I've had an opportunity this year to to coach a little bit for the first time. And, and you know, obviously it's it's not the same as, um, you know, setting up something for disaster relief or anything like that. But it's a it's a way that, you know, I've seen, you know, the positive effects that a, a simple compliment, you know, can can have on a young child about, you know, somebody who's trying really hard and is struggling and then they do something right. And you see the the breakthrough and you give them just a little pat on the back or something that brightens their day. And it really does go a long way. And, and once you, you sort of dive into it, you just want to keep going because you can see the type of difference um, that you can make. So, Charlie, I really appreciate you taking some time to chat with me, you know, both athletically and as a person, everything I've heard and read about you, I really admire and appreciate um, the career that you've had both on and off the field. And so it was awesome for me to get to chat with you. And, you know, I, I like to thank all my guests, especially the ones who I don't have prior relationships with, because I know it can be sometimes a little bit difficult to speak to somebody you don't know. But, you know, hopefully you enjoyed this a little bit because it was uh, it was great for me. And, you know, the efforts that you and your family put forth in the community, I'm sure, are, are going to continue and are greatly appreciated. And, you know, I thank you as well for, for everything you're doing. I appreciate it, Michael. And uh, you have a great day. You too. Thanks, Charlie. So there you have it, a conversation with Heisman Trophy winner and former New York Knicks point guard Charlie Ward. I hope you guys enjoyed the show. 
I'm really glad that I was able to record this episode with Charlie. I had been wanting to have him as a guest for quite a while now, and it took a few weeks of trying to find some time that fit with his busy schedule, because in addition to coaching and all the work he does with his foundation, Charlie also travels around giving speeches and has all kinds of stuff on his plate right now, and so I'm very grateful that he was able to carve out about 40 minutes for us. Uh, certainly would have loved to pick his brain for another 40 minutes if I had the time, but did my best to, to squeeze in everything that I, I could into that window and Again, just very thankful for, for Charlie making the time to, to chat with me. It was awesome to hear some of his stories about, you know, those Florida State teams in the 90s and what it was like to be part of the competition that they had there. And then just, you know, sort of what it's like to go from a sport where you're an absolute star and on top of the world to then, you know, riding the bench for the Knicks for the first couple of years of his career before Jeff Van Gundy comes in and elevates him to the starter and, and everything turns around. But again, even in basketball, he certainly never achieved the uh, best in the world kind of status that he had in the college football ranks and he talked about that so it was it was really interesting to hear that perspective and uh, again just thankful to have the time to speak with Charlie and I hope you guys enjoyed it be sure to check out all the rest of the episodes of this podcast it's crazy to think we've already had 25 episodes this is our 25th and I, I thank all the listeners for making this possible because if you guys weren't interested in hearing the show and tuning in every time I put out an episode then there's no way we would have made it all the way to 25 so be sure to check out all of our other episodes there available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and just about anywhere else you listen to shows. Don't forget, if you're listening on an Apple device, please leave us a star rating, preferably five stars if you like the show, and maybe a comment so I can hear what you guys thought of the first 25 episodes and what we might try and do in future shows down the road. So until the next episode of this podcast, I hope you guys have a terrific rest of your day, a terrific rest of your week, and I will talk to you again soon.